Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas, and we're your hosts for Q Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q Talks, we're talking to Matthew Bullock, an influential figure in helping craft the Cambridge phenomenon with a background in Barclays Bank, NHS Finance Management, and currently the Master of St. Edmunds College. Hi, Matthew. Thank you very much for coming on the show with us today. My pleasure. If you could start off telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Okay. I I first came to Cambridge as an undergraduate reading history in the 1960s. So I've been here an awfully long time. Uh, And then I went away. And then I came back. I I worked uh, initially in policy. And then I got in the bank, Barclays Bank. And they surprisingly sent me back here as a bank manager, which is very strange being bank manager to some of my previous dons. Uh, But uh, that started me off uh, getting involved with the technology companies, which were just starting to emerge uh, in the sort of late 70s. And so I I financed those here and uh, wrote a paper about the future economic development of Cambridge, which I think has been an enormous underestimate of what actually has happened. Uh, And uh, then I did technology financing really until the end of the 80s. Uh, and then I did other things in, in Barclays Group and, and elsewhere and retired from banking after about 40 years. Uh, and then came back, so always had a base here, and then came back and was involved with the hospital, uh, chaired a technology company here, which was in life sciences, and then surprisingly was asked to become master of a college here. So here I am, and I'm just coming to the end of my stint. Great. And you currently have a hand in other sort of entrepreneurial groups in Cambridge at the moment? Well, I, I, I do. I'm an investor, an angel investor in a number of companies, um, but I'm more concentrating on really kind of regional economics and trying to make sure. I feel very responsible for the way the town city has changed since I came here uh, and things like kind of house prices and congestion and so forth. So I'm doing a lot of work actually looking at the shape and future development of the city region and how we make sure we can continue to have sustainable growth. Very interesting. Uh, you've had a very illustrious uh, career um, in very different contexts. So mm-hmm. you already mentioned that you've been in banking. Mm-hmm. You've been in senior positions in building societies. Yep. Yep. Uh, you've been involved in other societies. And now you're master of St. Edmunds. Can you draw any parallels between these very different positions in terms of your experiences and what you have learned during your career? Well, I suppose, having read history, I've always been kind of interested in people mm. and stories. Uh, and, and that's very helpful in banking, but I'm just interested in people. And all the service, all the businesses I've been involved in have really been kind of involved, mostly in service businesses. I've not been a manufacturer like you are here at IFM, um, other than when I ran uh, TAP uh, Biosystems. Um, so uh, I guess I'm, uh, I work with people. Uh, mm-hmm. Service organisations, some of them are very big. I mean, banks are very big service organisations and the complexities of managing matrices and how people relate to each other internationally, by sector, by function. 
Uh, and I found that very much in the hospital. I mean, I'd have to say of all the organizations to manage, the hospital is the most difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, in, in business, you have, you know, um, price and you have quality and you can do a trade-off between those in the sense of what mm-hmm. the consumer uh, likes. In the health service, you can't do that. You've got price, uh, quality or cost, quality and volume. And mm-hmm. you can't turn away volume. So you can't manage your flow in the kind of way that you would in any ordinary business. And that, that was very challenging. Uh, anybody who runs a hospital nearly, really, they take, take my hat off to them. It's very hard. Mm. In your work with, you mentioned with life science mm. um, technology yeah. startup, um, was, did you find that that also applied in terms of those other sort of pain points or how you manage the company versus more techno- uh, pure technology startups? <laughs> Yes. I mean, uh, uh, let me talk a bit about startups, because I think there's a kind of domination at the moment in people's thinking of a particular model of startup, which is you go off, run around, find some venture capitalists and angel investors who put a lot of money in, and then what you do is rush to produce the product that you've had in mind and bring it to the market. Uh, And if you can find that, I mean, it's clearly the quickest way to get there. You know, that's fantastic. But it's actually the minority of companies that go down that route. Mm-hmm. So the majority of companies start off, particularly or technical companies anyway, technology companies, with the founders having a kind of broad understanding of an area of technology. And uh, they then go into the market, usually kind of building on a bespoke basis or doing even consultancy, uh, and working out what the market is actually interested in and what they know. And they're addressing customers' problems. They're not selling a product at the first thing. They're addressing customers' problems. And then they discover that there is a kind of consistent theme of problems for which they can then build either a service or a product. Mm -hmm. And this is what I christened back in the 1980s the soft company model Mm -hmm. as opposed to the the, the product-oriented model. Uh, which was hard companies where you kind of it's much more demanding uh, to uh, start a hard company Um, and uh, one of the problems I kind of basically see in many many startups uh, is it sounds like a sort of sexual um, dysfunction but it's not it's called premature reification in other words (laughs) people rush to make a thing Uh, and one of the one of the points that I've learned in in doing technology is that Mm. you have no idea actually how your customers are going to use what you know. Mm. And if you go to a thing, you're you're kind of crystallizing it too early on. Mm. Whereas if you stay slightly softer with your ideas and with your capabilities, um, you'll find actually what they like. And when you know what they like, then you accelerate towards product. But often, and that is a sustainable model. I mean, actually... The way we finance them in the bank, that is perfectly bankable. You don't need, I mean, it's great if you have venture capital to get there quicker, but you don't need venture capital if you're careful in that. So that kind of transitioning of companies over a period is the more common way in which people start companies here. And that's not known. And I, when, when I was thinking, you were asked to do this, in a sense, people say, gosh, we didn't realize this. And mm. I say, well, you know, wake up. That is actually, it's not as fast. Um, and it's, You've got to transition. You've got to learn to transition. So the initial teams you know, do change over time. So, so when I was asked to go and become chairman of, um, uh, of TAP Biosystems, which was a spin-out from the technology partnership, uh, there was a group of guys there who were kind of the first stage of that development. 
And as we transition towards defining you know, more products, with their agreement, we actually change the management team over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's another important thing you've got to realize is that people have certain ranges. You know, as a manager, they can do a certain range, but they can't do a, sort of a bigger range. And you have to have people with different experiences. So actually, we, um, we grew that business um, uh, from about sort of um, five million, no, it was about five million sales. We went up to eighteen million, and then the market we were working in kind of changed. So we brought it back down to ten, and then we grew it back up to twenty-five, and then we sold it, uh, and it's now trading at over seventy-five million uh, turnover. So, but what I would say that was a long journey. And the other thing about it is, you know, doing startups. Mm-hmm. Is not quick. You don't just sort of put the, don't just sort of start it up and pull the magic powder on and then get to the market in sort of three three years. You, you've got to really think that you're going to be in there for the long haul. But uh, enormously rewarding. I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not sure I've answered the question, but <laughs> you have. And I, I think we'll also come back to the topic of of startups in a, yeah. in a little while. Yeah, yeah. Um, but before we do that, maybe to draw a little bit on your wealth of experience, because mm. you have been living and working in the wider Cambridge region for, yep. for many years. Mm. How has Cambridge changed from a business point of view? Uh, radically. When I came here in the 1970s uh, as a bank manager, uh, Cambridge was kind of known as a cabbage patch. <laughs> uh, it, it was kind of, there was pies which mm-hmm. had just been bought by Philips after a rather sort of, after being there a long time, but nonetheless had kind of folded into Philips. No one really kind of related to that very much. And there were just um, sort of uh, estate agents, and that was pretty much it. There was no technology here. There was something called the CAD Centre, which had been sort of curiously put here by government. No one really understood why. Uh, and then the sort of CAD companies started to emerge uh, from particularly the computing lab and the engineering lab. And uh, to give you an idea about how, how it changed, it would take a different perspective. Um, I learned later on that Barclays had had a district office here, which ran the branches uh, mm-hmm. in this area, um, was really regarded as a cabbage patch. And the um, bank was thinking of closing this district. Uh, I mean, leaving the branches here, but the actual kind of the, the people who were doing the lending and uh, either sending it off to Norwich or running it from Chelmsford. Uh, now, over the, over the, what is it, 50 years uh, since, well, the 40 years since that time, the whole of East Anglia has been folded, running the bank, the whole of East Anglia has been folded into Cambridge. Mm. Cambridge has just turned around completely as a, um, a locality. It's now regarded in, you know, nationally uh, and internationally. Now, in China, I was asked to go and speak in Shanghai next week, which I can't do, but about the Cambridge phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, people just say this is a really exceptional. So it has grown very rapidly. Um, one, I now track annually uh, the rate of growth of all the Cambridge companies in totality and trying to understand this whole region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we were looking at the 1925, uh, 15, I think it was, it was actually growing faster than China. Huh. <laughs> you know, wow. yeah, so, you know, from a cabbage patch to out, out, outstripping China uh, for, for a period, I guess, come back a bit slower. Now mm. it's about 4%. Um, that's how much it's changed. What were the drivers of that acceleration? Well, it started with software, uh, particularly sort of engineering software. Uh, there was firms coming out of the out of the engineering lab, out of um, computer science, out of uh, architecture. Um, 
Uh, and, and that kind of grew, and, and, and there was computer companies with things like um, Acorn and Sinclair. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it transitioned towards telephony. Uh, and we had all that. We didn't get particularly involved in the internet boom. In it's not, It was not in that kind of marketing stream. It's always been in kind of professional sales, B2B rather than B2C. Mm. Uh, and then life sciences. And, I mean, life sciences is just... We're in the foothills of a Himalayan industry. I mean, it's just, it just stretches. I've never seen an industry which is potentially going to be as large as life sciences. Um, really, that's really exciting. From what, I, from what I understand, you're a big driver of that growth, especially in the sort of technology area, um, in terms of your role at Barclays. I sort of did two things. First of all, I provided finance. Yeah, so I was I was making funds available. I wasn't a venture capitalist. I mean, I, I do that personally now, but um, at the time I was using bank money to make this happen. I think that the what was interesting was that the role of a, a thing like a bank, um, it's a big and serious commercial organisation, mm -hmm. was also to validate. In other words, to say to people, well, you know, the bank's taking this seriously. Mm -hmm. So the planners started to say, ooh, I remember taking the planners to see the first technology company. They, you know, they had no idea what they were like. Uh, and they had no planning regime for them, actually. And I had to tell them that they weren't allowed to close the company down when I took them into this private house and showed them these people with you know, sandals and rather long hair and a few of them had beards and so forth who were building, <laughs> <laughs> building stealth systems for the US Navy. I mean, they just, their eyes came out on stalks. They said, what are these people doing in Portugal Place, you know? <laughs> Um, but I, I suppose what I did was I kind of basically then facilitated, you know, mm -hmm. told people what was happening, uh, and then people kind of said, oh, that's interesting, and they came too. So I've always been a kind of believer that if you, if you tell inf people good information and, and can show it's true, then other people will join in. And I talked to all the accountants and the lawyers and you know, brought the first IP lawyer to Cambridge. And just these things came around. So I, I feel like I helped build the innovation establishment, mm -hmm. <laughs> which then has been around here and supported people. Um, but I, and, and, you know, I've, I've played a small part in my own personal finance, but there have been lots of people. And I can sense it's, it's showing the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then other people have come in and you know, taken that. So... Yeah. It's not a driver so much as a facilitator, I suppose. Well, the, the Cambridge phenomenon, as it's, as it's now called yeah. by some people, has been a tremendous success, as you just explained. Mm. But do you also see a darker side to it, that mm. there might be uh, the danger that Cambridge can become a victim of its own success? So, for instance, the costs of, of living in Cambridge yep. have risen quite dramatically in the last decade or so. Yeah. Yes, I, I mean, uh, let me say... I was, I was, we, I was in the meeting where we called it phenomenon for the first time, which mm -hmm. was a meeting in the in the Eagle Pub in uh, July 1979. So we didn't know what it was. We counted up 36 technology companies in the whole area, and we said, "Oh, this is really unusual. It's a phenomenon." We didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. uh, there are now over 5,000 technology companies in the Cambridge area. Just to give you an idea: mm -hmm. 40 years from 36 to 5,000 is quite, wow. quite a quite a rate of growth. Yeah, there is a, a downside, and that's really what I've been spending my time on now because it's a rather simple problem, in a way. Um, the the, the uh, forecasts of employment growth and population growth uh, in the Cambridge region uh, are just wrong. 
Mm. And the planners were uh, forecasting uh, using a, um, technically this is a, 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 what's called a shift share model, uh, and they were forecasting employment growth of 0.7% per annum mm -hmm. up to the time they were looking at until 2025. And I just said, well, it's growing at 7% per annum, you know, 10 times faster than you're actually building your planning for. And they were just, they were astonished. I mean, and it was because of this under forecasting of what is um, happening on the ground and invisibility because of national statistics were, were being very poor in showing this. Um, the kind of the, the people pouring in was just much faster than the infrastructure and the housing mm -hmm. uh, that was available for it. So most of my work now is really around that and the consequences and getting the numbers to the right level and then trying to say, okay, well, we have what is really quite an inflamed mm -hmm. system here. And I, I do genuinely believe that you can get balanced growth, which is sustainable and which people enjoy and you know where you have roads that flow and you have houses that you don't have to share and this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, and it is possible as long as you get the data and you keep the planning and the, the kind of everybody abreast of it. So what I now do is annually we're producing this data with the, and, and sharing it with the planners so that when they were doing the, the planning now, and we're just going right in this exercise at the moment, um, people actually understand what we're talking about. Because to give you an idea, um, currently um, the last uh, plan for this area mm -hmm. by the local authorities had uh, an um, employment forecast that we would have... 206,000 people would be employed in Cambridge uh, in 2031. That was our forecast. Well, we, we reached 197 in 2017. Mm -hmm. And if we look forward, even on a quite conservative basis, we're talking about a city which is probably 800,000 people by 2050. Huh. So, you know, we're just talking about a totally different kind of... Uh, and the, and the, the great trick here is how do you you know get ahead of that deal with the past backlog which we have which is why the you know we have 13 times house price yeah. value mm -hmm. to salary um and then kind of facilitate that going forwards and, and again it's all this facilitation point once people realize what the issue is they say okay well that's that's, that's we can deal with that uh, and you've got to do it in a way which, and I think this is really important, that maintains the kind of quality of life. Because Cambridge mm. is a very special place. I think we're all really proud of how special it is. And, you know, if we just slap up things commercially and, you know, it's all well, crass and don't pay attention to the quality of life and the environment that we mm. live in uh, and climate change, then, you know, that is going to wreck what is a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. And the reason we get so many so charming foreign scientists coming in is because it's a great place, it's, it's exciting, uh, and it's also affordable. Mm. And it's also affordable for the local population as well as people who come in, because mm. you know, there are people who are actually born here who must participate in what's going on as much as anything else. Mm. So we mentioned this earlier, but yeah. maybe if we start to look at um, maybe the differences between the soft and hard startups, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that would be really interesting in terms of understanding how founders can sort of start to position themselves and understand, because like you were mentioning, there seems to be this race towards getting venture capital investment. Mm. Um, and what are the sort of traps that they can fall into thinking that that is the only option? Yes, and, and I mean, yeah, the truth is, if you can get venture capital money, 
you know, it's, you get there much faster. It is just, you know, you know, it's great. You spend somebody else's money and, you know, they, in return for the equity. And, and if you're successful, you, you, make a, you, know, you make money much quicker. So there's no, no question that, you know, if you can do that, it's great. But let's be realistic. Um, the number of uh, firm, number of uh, business plans the venture capitalists look at and the number they finance is you know, below 5%. Below 5%, so 95% of business plans they're going to look at, they're not going to finance. Mm. So the question is, what do those people do? Do they give up and say, oh, don't be sorry, I'll go off and join the city or go to a firm of lawyers? No, there is actually another alternative. It is harder, uh, uh, and you've got to learn how to do it. But there is another method, and that was the point. And the truth is, actually, if you go back and look in the Cambridge history of the Mm. companies, most of them start soft. Okay. I mean, it's only only latterly in the 1990s, for example, a lot of life sciences people got there. You know, they were going to do new chemical entities, and therefore they got you know, got venture capital. And then it, then the money suddenly was not there, and they all said, "Oh my goodness, we'll all get out of business." Well, actually, if you start a business in a non-sustainable mode, you will go out of business. That's mm-hmm. the nature of what you know, business does to you. So. The, the kind of realising there is this alternative. So if you aren't successful and you've worn out your shoe leather going around talking to the venture capitalists and no one's backing you, mm. don't necessarily say, OK, well, that's it, I can't do it. There is another model. You, the other model says basically, OK, you're going to have to start... You have to start by finding your customer. You've got to find an idea. You've got an idea of the area that you're competent in and you go and find somebody who has a problem that you can address. Mm. Now, this, here's the thing. This is people, <laughs> this is something you, you learn in business. Companies, big companies that buy things, um, governments too, but big companies particularly, have three kind of pots of money mm-hmm. for work in this area. And their, their, their psyche about them is very different. So the hardest thing of all is to do R&D. Because okay, R&D budgets inside big companies are guarded like sort of, um, the, the dwarf's gold in, in, in Ebola. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and only the kind of the best high priests get to touch that. Mm. Um, and the next sort of pot of money is capital expenditure or new product introduction into their business. So if you're going to be a supplier to somebody with a product or you're going to, they're going to buy CapEx, again, really, really careful. It goes through lots of committees. Everybody's got to see what's the ROI on this. It's all kind of very um, carefully guarded. So it's hard to sell to that. But the hugest number of, of, of numbers, the biggest numbers that run through a company are revenue expenses, okay? Now, if, in fact, you can say, I can save you, you know, 1% on your revenue expenditure, then, of course, they'll say, fine, that's fantastic. So answer a problem. Don't try and sell them a solution. Answer a problem which takes their revenue expenses down, and then it's a much more straightforward sale. Mm. So that's the way to kind of pitch, you know, I... Go to conferences, meet people, discover what their issues are in operations. And you, know, you here at IFM must see this really closely and then say, OK, well, we have a solution which we can save you, you know, 0.1 of that 1%. But actually the number in the, in the profit and loss account is so big that actually they'll say yes. And it doesn't go through the same committees because it's just a revenue expense. Mm-hmm. So actually you, that's kind of get that psyche. That's what you're selling to. And that money is much more easily available. And then on the back of that, you start to say, well, who else has got this problem? 
and then you go and go around and you sell solutions to more and more, and then you transition towards you know repeating it, what I call routinization of your solution, to the point where actually you produce a product, and at that point. Then you say, ah, I've now got a robust product. I know where the demand is. That's the point when you go and get venture capital. Mm. You know, because then, then you've got customers. You know who your customers are mm. and you know what the cash flows are. And if it doesn't work, this is a really interesting point about it, is if it doesn't work, um, then actually you haven't killed the company off because you can go back to selling the kind of way you were selling before. And I, I've seen lots of entrepreneurs in Cambridge who have done that, have tried something, it didn't work. They've softened the company back a bit, mm-hmm. got the cash flows going again, and then they're on. I mean, that's actually what happened to us at TAP. We, we built up a market supplying very big um, uh, uh, life science compound stores. It was a big growth market for, for a period. We were the leading players in the market, and then other people saw it, and they started to commoditize it, and, and uh, we realized that there wasn't the margin, and then we kind of used the cash flow from that to invest in biological storage and, and, and um, sample development, and that's what then grew us back up and is now up you know, 75 million. So it's kind of running your business, learning to run your business in a way that is kind of flexible. Mm. Um, to use the crude expression, you know, if you go hard, it's shit or bust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah, and Death Valley Curve is well known because a lot of people don't make it around the curve and mm-hmm. sort of shoot straight over. So that, that's the kind of mm. thing I would say to people. Just, just think of this other model as well. How important is failure for founders? Um, well, it's not fun. Mm. I mean, a failing company is a really kind of stressful place. Uh, I mean, I've done a lot of reconstructions. I've done a lot, ha- handled a lot of companies in, in, in difficulties. And it's not fun. Um, uh, you know, it doesn't mean to say that you're a kind of, you know, a catastrophe should never be backed again. But it depends how you fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends, your behaviors are really important. I mean, uh, there's a certain gentleman who's trying to refinance his, sh- his retail um, business at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the things I learned in business is you get back what you give out. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had to rescue Acorn and Sinclair. So I had Herman Hauser and, one, and Chris Curry on the one side, and I had Clive Sinclair on the other. And they both had identical suppliers. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to sort of sort out the finances because they both had overestimated the home computer market in 1984-5. And it was quite extraordinary the way... It went. So mm-hmm. the people who dealt with Chris and Herman said they were really nice guys. They always left a little bit on the table. They were always dead straight the way they behaved. Whereas when they dealt with Clive, he'd always been really hard driving and always kind of pushed and pushed. And the two sets of meetings were just totally different. So I've seen failure really close up, but how you behave and whether you're straight or whether you get devious, which people can do when it gets tough, uh, is very important. If you failed for a good reason, which is that you know, the market just falls away from you, that's fine. Uh, I mean, that just, yeah, that's life. You have to, like the car people at the moment, you know, they suddenly have to change over to electrics. They've got to close bridge end, that's fine. You know, they're taking, the market does go up, the market does go down, and you've got to respond to that. If you've been engaging in fraud or if you've you know, sold things which were spoof, you know, those kinds of things, you know, then that's not good, and people will know you for that. And the community is small mm-hmm. so how you behave um as you go down and you know people do um is kind of pretty important uh, 
one of the things, I mean, I, I think the important thing is that if people have failed for good reasons, it doesn't mean to say they shouldn't start up again, mm-hmm. but they've got to learn the lessons from it. So, you know, you, you, don't, you don't rush to put money, stuff money in their pockets <laughs> just because you failed. Here, here's some more money. You say, okay, what have we learned from this and what was wrong with the team? Often teams break up and you're why did the team break up and, and you've got to say, well, you know, what caused that? Mm. So there's some things to actually analyse in why people do fail. Um, but I think one of the things that was at a system level, uh, and I think a lot about kind of systems at this point, sort of the econo, the meso system, if I can put it that, you know, the mm. regional system. Uh, it's very important that Cambridge has had basically a very low failure rate in the sense that it, in the early stages of creating the Cambridge phenomenon, you know, if uh, I spent a massive amount of time sorting out um, Sinclair and, and Acorn, mm. Because if there had been a sort of a really major couple of failures, then the confidence of everybody in the system would have gone away. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we as the kind of sponsors of the system in the bank were concerned to make sure that if, if they were going to go down, they would subside down rather than crash. Because when a, when a firm crashes over, lots of people get their fingers burnt and the suppliers all, you know, and, and the workforce feel, oh my God, this was harrowing, I want to go away. Uh, whereas if it subsides, then they can go off. And, and you get a, what's called a starburst, where people kind of go off into other companies, and then you get other people starting other bits in the business. So if you handle that and don't have a crash, mm-hmm. then actually the system is stronger f- for it. Do you think failure looks different nowadays to how it would um, sort of back then because there are many more companies here that there would not be such a big huge ripple if there were to be a failure of one startup and so yeah. how how is that different and how can companies sort of manage the landscape differently well I, I think I, I mean I think that's exactly the point now that the, now that the kind of we're talking about 5,000 firms the failure of one or two um, is kind of much less important than it was at the very early stages when Acorn and Sinclair were. You know, we, we were perhaps only you know, 100 firms at that point, and they were the most high-profile. I mean, uh, Acorn had gone public. Mm. Uh, you know, if that, if that had collapsed in a kind of major way and everybody got very badly burned, um, you know, that would have been important then. It would be less important now. Um, the the, the I mean, I think the, because the area, the time of, mo- of a lot of failures here was actually around the internet um, boom. And it wasn't actually an internet company. It was a lot of life. What happened was that the internet boom frightened the investors off. And one has to realize that there are tides <laughs> in the mm. finance market. And everybody was getting terribly excited about sort of anything technological uh, in the noughties, in the, the end of the, sorry, the 90s, the end of the 90s. And when the... Um, internet boom was going along people were also investing in life sciences and creating you know basically trying to we going to create a wonder drug well <laughs> it was totally naive it, 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 kind of the costs of, of bringing a drug to market were just it, are enormous and actually around here it was the life sciences people who started to go down mm. at the point that the, the internet business in london and so forth and elsewhere was going down because the money dried up and all of them had unsustainable models. They all worked on the basis that, you know, oh, when I've got to this point, when I get to my stage two, then I'll raise another you know, few a million from these. That was an unsustainable model. And basically, I remember having meetings at the time. 
and I wasn't doing that. I wasn't financing them at the time. I was doing other things. But I just said, look, you know, if you start unsustainable models, uh, you're totally dependent on the tides in the finance market. Well, don't mm. be surprised if you fall over. And it's interesting, companies like Abcam and Horizon are both tools companies. You know, they're not building, they're not building new chemical entities. What they're both doing is delivering, you know, in both cases, chemical tools into the pharmaceutical system. Whereas the people who were trying to build companies in the sort of late 90s were trying to say, oh, I'm going to build a new drug, you know. Well, <laughs> there are one or two, like Humira and, 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 and CAT, were, were whole new technologies there, yeah. which are successful, but a lot of the people were just you know, one particular entity, and it was, was crapshoot. You know? <laughs> uh, so you, that, that doesn't work like that. So I, I think just thinking about what industry you're in, yeah. as opposed to just, oh, my company, who are your customers? Uh, and uh, thinking about the volatilities around you and, and how you would deal with that, rather than just simply saying, I'm going to go for it all, you know, or go bust. Yeah. It would be the way I'd, I'd suggest people look to things. Mm. G given your experiences as a banker yeah. and as a businessman, but also given your experiences as an angel investor, mm. what do you look for when you're investing into a company or a team of founders? Um, the most important thing I look at, first of all, is what is the market they're addressing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people massively underestimate the cost of distribution mm -hmm. and the structure of distribution and the accessibility of distribution of the product. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, somebody says, I'm going to bring a drug to market. You know, you just got to think of the regulatory requirements to get there. It is just not feasible for a small startup company to say, I'm going to do that. So you just, you know, somebody says, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the biggest this. You just could say, you know, wake up. <laughs> you can't do that. So be, be realistic. Then I look at the team. Mm. Uh, and I, that's really key. Do I believe that they have the right mix? It isn't going to be one person. It's going to be a set of people, not too many. Do they hang together well? And, and do they present well? And then I will look at the... Um, I look at the, you know, the, then what the operating model is. There's an enormous amount of sort of change. Digitalization has changed a lot of m business models, and I'll, I, I do look at that. But I'm really kind of just look at the end market. You know, you, companies succeed because they find an end market which is suddenly expanding out quickly and is accessible, and that, that's what I'm kind of hoping to find. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I was going to ask a kind of off-piste question, yeah. but yeah, go ahead. Um, <laughs> Do you think when you're saying companies should look at that end market, um, mm. do you think that that is more applicable in life sciences than some of the more sort of pure technology, software-driven companies? Where Because in life sciences, it's there are more hurdles to jump through. There is a slightly more robust end market in the sense that it will be there for a slightly longer time. Whereas in in sort of pure technology applications, there are big, the waves come and go a lot quicker. Yes, I mean, it depends kind of what kind of ambition you have for a company. If you just want to build an apps company, yeah. uh, and I have to say I haven't been, I haven't sort of been in the market financing these kind of companies, so I'm not sure quite, but I guess you're, what you're doing is you're selling um, to Apple or, or, or through Google, um, whatever it is, the Google site that they have for their apps. 
and I guess those are pretty short li- short-lived businesses. I mean, I, I, I'm bemused, frankly, uh, seeing the kind of the London tech scene, which seems to be basically a mixture of marketing uh, and sort of um, digital media, uh, which is really coming into the almost into the entertainment business. And and that's you know, that's fine. I'm, <laughs> they, they clearly make money out of it, but it's a very fast-moving business. Yeah. And I'm, I've played much more in in a B2B. B2C seems to me um, kind of a wilder. Um, you've got to have much more money to be successful in B2C. Um, I mean, there's an old adage that IBM used to have, which is it took one unit to kind of develop a product. It took three to get it ready um, to kind of produce it, and it took 10 to market it. <laughs> okay. And most people forget that. They do the one and the three, and then they say, oh, I'm going to do that. Now, digitization has undoubtedly sort of changed the shape of the 10, but now everybody's piled into it. You still have to spend the 10, because mm. the marketing of your product out there in the, you know, in the, on the internet is as expensive as it is you know, putting it on billboards and trying to get it to consumers. And that's not the kind of company I actually see particularly here in Cambridge. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you say, well, what have been the really successful exits? They are becoming specialists at tracking what we call the tier one companies and working out what the next really interesting um, sort of broad application of, um, I don't mean app, but it the, the next function mm. that they want to develop. And they're really smart at getting themselves riding several of the supply chains. Uh, and I, Come back to bigger picture. I, I, I'm not a believer in acorns to oaks. Okay, the way that the, if you look seriously at the shape of world business, what you've had in the last uh, 40 years is the kind of um, disappearance, really, of national champions within their own uh, within their own economy, and the emergence of very big global players who are you know, the tier ones, and the concentration in technology has, has grown and grown. So anyway, you look at the here, what share is taken by the largest companies, it has got bigger, mm. not smaller. So the question is, what's the relationship between small companies that are starting up and this con- massive consolidation? I mean, you think of things like power generation companies, how many power generation companies there were uh, in the end of the 80s, for example. I mean, we had um, two, the French had two, the Germans had one, the Dutch had one, you know, the Swiss had one, the Swedes had one, the Americans had three. You know, these were very big corporations. And how many are there now? I mean, you're probably talking about five, of which one is you know, going to be Chinese, there'll be an Indian one which will emerge soon, and then there are possibly three other players worldwide. Now, you know, that's, and you take telephony and these kinds of things. It's the same kind of compression and, and concentration. So the relationship of the small company startup to that is what you've got to think of. And what people here, I think, are really smart at is they get in... These, these big companies are like huge locomotives pulling massive trains of suppliers behind them. Mm. And you know, I, I take people like a bit like American hobos. You know, they're really good at jumping onto these moving trains and several at the same time. So I mix my metaphor. Mm. But several at the same time with a really kind of critical component that they can say this is going to be the next key component. Mm-hmm. And then they build themselves dominant positions in those key components. And then they get dragged along by the growth of the market. And then who do they sell to? They don't, the company doesn't go to IPOs. 
they get bought by their customers. Yeah. Because actually they've got such an attractive component that, you know, Apple or Huawei or um, LG or, or um, you know, one of the other companies has to have that component. Mm -hmm. And then they bid themselves and they say, okay, well, I've got an offer here from Apple, another one from Amazon. You know, who's going to pay more? Yeah. Mm. And then that's how they make their money. That's a, that's a really, I think it's a really smart way of playing this game. Yeah. But it's all B to C. It's all B to B. This isn't B to C. A light-hearted question to finish this podcast, but there's a slightly serious note to it as well. Mm -hmm. If you were aged 18 now in yep. 2019, yeah. what would you do? I read life sciences. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've done, I, I, I was around, my, mine was the sort of the electronics and the tech generation. Um, but life sciences, I just, as I said, we have foothills of the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. It's just vast industry and all the kind of technology that will support that. I think it's just going to be fantastic. I just, it was such an exciting thing to watch. And we're, you know, we have the, one of the world's centers here, genomics and the, you know, the Sanger and that work. Mm -hmm. uh, and just as a very quick point, which is very, people don't think about, but Cambridge is one of the very few places in the world, uh, clusters are not new. Mm -hmm. okay. Clusters have been around since the Middle Ages, you know, the wool cluster in parts of Prato and you know, North Italy and so forth, uh, and ceramics. You know, these have been around a long time. And the wool cluster up in Yorkshire, for example. What happens is that typically, historically, clusters have got stuck in that sector. Mm -hmm. What's different about Cambridge and about Boston and about um, uh, California is that the people who learnt to grow the companies in one sector because they'd, they'd made money, it was good money made in the 80s and, uh, and 90s here, they then learnt to go into a different sector. So the guys who'd made money in, um, in electronics moved into telephony, totally different business model. They did well in telephony, then again, they moved into life sciences. All of these are very, very different businesses. Mm. And if you look at the kind of the range of technologies that are now supported in the Cambridge cluster. It's just, it's just huge. But I would have to say that life sciences are the one that I can just see growing and growing and growing. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Uh, my pleasure, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that. Matthew brings such a wealth of experience uh, to this conversation and he has been an important part of the Cambridge phenomenon. I was intrigued that he said Cambridge evolved from only about 40 companies to now over 5,000 tech companies mm. in just the span of a few decades. I found that really fascinating. Um, but I was also intrigued by his comments on the role of venture capital and that this is an important way of financing many tech startups, but it's not the only way. And I think that's sometimes forgotten in such a hustling and bustling place such as Cambridge. Yeah, I agree. And I think what I particularly took out of that conversation with Matthew um, was the for founders of startups to be thinking about their end market and having the agility to serve the customers rather than sort of demanding that your product uh, gets to serve those customers. Yes. So I think that was that was a really important lesson for me. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much to Matthew for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV and we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech for working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech 
to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us about your experiences in applying technical skills at startups. You can also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. <laughs>